So as many of you guys uh, know, my small group actually gave me some KPIs for the year. Uh, I had to go on two dates this year. And because it's me, I'm doing really well. I went on one date so far. And so uh, they're trying to help me out. And I think I said this to you guys before, I, I tend to like to ask them, you know, if they're going to introduce me to the girl, I have to be like, okay, what, what did you say to her? Like how, like, how did you introduce me to her? You know what I'm saying? I'm just trying to make sure they're saying the right things, right? That I'm like, you know, six foot, pushing six one, you know, that I was a personal trainer. I'm not saying, I'm just saying, you know, I just want to make sure they're saying the right things. And, you know, they're always like, no, we just told them you're a pastor. I'm like, that's the worst thing you could have said, you know what I'm saying? Like, at least maybe like prosperity pastor. That would, I have money, you know, but, um, but I always think it's interesting the way people introduce each other right? And specifically how they introduce me or how they introduce you. And I think the way people introduce you actually says a lot of their perception about you, right? It tells you how much they value you or how important they think you are. And generally speaking, right, the more important you are, the more grandiose the introduction. And so you go to any conference, it takes like 10 minutes for them to introduce the keynote speaker, right? They have like a scroll of their achievements from birth to that point. And you're just like, let's just hear this dude talk, you know? And it makes sense, though, because uh, you want to make sure that people fully appreciate the magnitude of whatever, whoever that person is, right? Especially if you're speaking to an audience that may be unfamiliar with them or with their achievements. So you would think that Mark, the author of this book, writing to an audience that is largely unfamiliar with Jewish Christian history would make it a point of emphasis to introduce the first and most important apostles of Jesus Christ in a way that is worthy of their status. Wouldn't that make sense? You would think that Mark would be like, these guys are literally responsible for the birth, for the genesis of the Christian church, so perhaps I should add a little, you know, pomp behind their first appearance in the passage we read today. Is that what he does? Let's read it again. In verse 16, we see him talking about Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. And then here's a grandiose introduction he gives them. What does he say? For they were fishermen. It doesn't get much better for uh, James and John in verse uh, 19. They're called the son of Zebedee. In fact, in 20, again, we see it says that it mentions their father Zebedee. And so in some ways, I think their father is actually mentioned more and is more, given more prominence in this passage than they are. And it's fascinating, it's interesting that this is how Mark decides to identify perhaps the four biggest largest, most important church figures in the early Jewish church. It's almost like he's saying, you may have heard of these people before, but I'm here to tell you, they're just ordinary men. They're not the ones who are extraordinary in this story. That's what it seems like Mark is doing. He's saying this is how everyone identified them. They were fishermen. 
right? Or by their association with their father, Zebedee, who we assume has a pretty successful fishing business. And so before Jesus came along, this was their identity. And so we're going to talk a lot about personal identity. I think it's kind of tricky to define, but the definition I came up with, bear with me, is that personal identity is a collection of things that's perceived as important to your expression as an individual. Not bad, right? Tim Keller-esque. Identity is a collection of things that's perceived as important to your expression as an individual. So first, it's a collection of things. One philosopher, David Hume, says that imagine you have a box. Your, what your identity is is this, this, what's the word he used? He used, it's a, it's a bundle of items, is what he says. And each item represents a different characteristic or a different belief, a different attribute. And this whole box filled together makes up who you are. Pretty simple concept. But what's important for us to think about is that he also says things can be added and removed from this box, right? So the things that are important to you, the things that you often make a part of your identity can actually change. That was his point. As you know, you're not the same person you were four weeks ago. You're not the same person you were four years ago. You're not the same person you were yesterday. Our identity is not static. What's important for us to realize is that it can and it will change. Our priorities and beliefs are subject to change. And I say all this because finally my main argument today is that Jesus did not come primarily to change people's lifestyle, but to transform their identity from whoever they are to faithful disciples of Christ. Did you know that Christ wants you to be a new person, to have a new mind, to see yourself in a new light? That, that's the goal of Christ. It's not simply about your actions. It's the opposite. See, Jesus understands that if he could transform our identity, then our lives are sure to follow. The things in the box uh, inform, and, and, and they ultimately uh, uh, determine how we think we should act. I took a philosophy class, and that's one of the classes or things we argue about the most. What comes first, the change of behavior, the change of mindset? And so often what they found is that it's your mindset that determines your behavior. And I think this is important because for so long the church has gotten it wrong. You see, the church beginning in the 20th century, after some uh, liberal and modern theology was popping up, they almost became obsessed with what I call uh, moral actions. The church and its leaders became obsessed with moral actions, and they would use any tactic they could to instill in a generation of people what they believed was a Christian lifestyle. Any tactic they could to say, this is the way you should live your life. And they especially like fear, right? If you're like me, you remember growing up in the church and the fear tactic they would use, right? Don't 
read Harry Potter, don't drink, right? Don't swear. Or you're like, you'll die. You know what I'm saying? You're like, you'll die? I'll die if I swear? Like, what the front door? You know? Like, but that's what they did, right? And they scared you. And so I have, like, I didn't drink or curse until the Bears game on Thursday, Loki. But that's neither here nor there, I digress. Um, but the church tried to create a Christian lifestyle. You following me so far? They're trying to create a Christian lifestyle without helping people see their identity in Christ first. They tried to correct what they saw as immoral actions without showing people the immortal God. You see, before you do anything else, before you do anything, God wants you to realize who you are in Him. Before you change anything else, God wants wants you to know that He calls you His beloved. Before you came out of your mother's womb, it says he knit you and he set you aside, set you apart, called you apart to a lifestyle that he was going to empower you to live. Are you feeling me? It's not about changing your actions. It's about realizing who your identity is in Christ. So the very first thing that Jesus says to Peter and Andrew, who were pretty unceremoniously introduced to us, Peter and Andrew, whose identities were wrapped up in their occupation as fishermen, the very first thing he says to them in verse 17 is what? Follow me. That's what he says. So he starts by inviting them to be with him. His goal is to transform them. And his first thing he says, what he starts with, is follow me. This is different than when people nowadays say, follow me, right? Uh, I mean, if you take it literally, you follow somebody on Twitter or Instagram, um, you often just see a doctored version of their life, don't you? In some ways, actually, it's a good way to see uh, people's identity. It's a good way to see what is important to them, or at least what they want you to think is important to them. And so when you follow people now, you actually don't really get to see their lives. I mean, it's amazing the way people can control and manipulate. I mean, even in pictures alone, with the filters and the light. Like, like, I always knew about this, but someone actually recently sat me down and, like, showed me what you can do, like, with one of my pictures. You know what I'm saying? And, like, by the end, I, like, looked like Michael B. Jordan. You know what I'm saying? I was like, my body always kind of looked like, but even my face, I was like, this is amazing. You know? And, and so what, I, what I'm saying is, I don't know what I'm saying, but part of what I'm saying is that what it means to follow people so often today is not to actually see their life, but to see almost like a shadow of their life. But what it meant to follow people, follow a rabbi or a religious leader back then, was to actually literally like be his shadow. Like it was creepy. You would follow them everywhere. You would actually try to adopt some of their mannerisms. You would eat where they eat. You would walk where they were. That's what it meant to follow a rabbi or religious leader. That's the kind of intimate relationship that Jesus is inviting them to. In fact, we don't see it here, but in John 1, the same apostles, Andrew and, and, and Peter, come to Jesus and they say, hey, hey, where are you staying? What does he say? Come and see. Come and stay where I'm staying. That's the invitation that Jesus gives them. Follow me, walk with me, stay where I stay in all the intimate places. 
And so it might be weird today to think about this, but it's a pretty standard practice at the time for disciples to have a close relationship with the rabbis. What was not standard was for the rabbis to be the ones that initiated those relationships. Very rarely, if ever, were the religious authoritative leaders the ones that would go especially to ordinary men and ask them to follow them. It's almost unheard of. It's almost scandalous. And I think there's something to be seen here about who Christ is, even to us. Like, like Peter and, and Andrew, John, and James, at this point, they're nobody special from what we know. They haven't done anything. They might have been teenagers, they think, right? But all they had was this eagerness to give up their old life for something they perceived was better. But they were ordinary, and Christ looked at them and said, you, I want you to follow me. I choose you. Look, I don't know how you remember your faith story. If you're a Christian, I don't know how you remember the time you came to faith. I don't know if you think I chose God. I invited God into my life. I, I don't know all your exact stories, but I do know something. None of you chose Christ. None of you chose God. He chose you first. God always chose you first. Even if you had the words that you said, it was through his spirit within you that cried out to him, Abba, Father, and he answered. God chose you. That's what is so remarkable about this passage here is that Christ is saying, I want to transform you guys. I want to give you a new identity, a new mind. And I am the one that will initiate this change. I'm the one that is preparing a place for you. And when I'm done, I'm going to bring you back so that you could be with me. He is asking us to follow him. And so why? Why? What, what did... Christ hope would happen when they walked with him and they saw all the crazy miracles and stuff he did. What was his plan? I think partly it's that he knew that identity ultimately changes through an encounter or an experience with something that's so appealing, it makes us reconsider what's important to us. I'll say it again. Identity ultimately changes when we have an encounter or we have an experience with something that's either so appealing or so out of the ordinary, it makes us like open up our box, look at all the things that were once important to us and reconsider. And I want to say like, it's not natural for us to open up our boxes. That the way we're designed is against what's called cognitive dissonance. We like being secure in our beliefs and our identity, even if it's a bad one, right? I mean, you, remember, you probably remember times where you had identity crisis, the insecurity that came with that, right? The fear that came with that. And so our natural desire is to try to close our box and to tape it shut. 
But every once in a while, we encounter something, we see something that's different than our old experience and makes us seriously reassess what's in our box. And this even happens apart from faith or apart from Christ, where we have these almost moments of mini-identity crises. An example I thought of, I don't know if it's a good example. It didn't really work downtown, but I'll just say it again. I don't know. Um, I'm African-American, but like for real African-American. You know what I'm saying? Like my parents were born in Nigeria. I was born in America, like the realest African-American. You know? And so what I said is that for me, um, it's interesting because there's parts of myself that identify, got, kind of got lumped in and accepted and identified with black culture, right? with the American, and then it's part of me that, you know, got spanked into the African culture, you know what I'm saying? And I said there's times where I could actually feel these two cultures almost at war with each other. Like there's times where I feel like my black self is at war with my African self, and my African ideals are at war with my like black ideals. And it's a very interesting battle. I think maybe some of us have actually gone through as well. We're first-generation Americans. And what I realize is that uh, I could think of specific uh, times in my life where I encountered something or something was brought to my attention or I was in a situation, right, where I would code switch. Or even put simply, I would open my box. And I'd say, right now, it's better for me to act, act African than black or act black than African. I don't, I don't know if this makes sense, but some of you might know what I'm saying. Where there's this times or moments where like, it's just more advantageous for me to put on this hat than the other hat. You know what I'm saying? And there's times where it's for, for neither. Like I, I joked that the, the, what's a juicy Smollett case, you know what I'm saying? At first I was like, oh my gosh, good thing I'm Nigerian. Then I was like, oh, this is awkward, because it was Nigerian, so it's bad for black and Nigerian. You know what I'm saying? Anyways, it doesn't matter. The point is, the point being, that there are times in our lives where even without Christ, right, we have these encounters, situations that makes us reassess what's good and important to us. And I was saying this to them uh, downtown. It's a little bit of a tangent. It's silly to expect that our number one identity would be in Christ if we've never had an encounter with him. Like, if, it, if what it takes to change our identity is an amazing, positive encounter, and we've never had a real encounter with Christ, doesn't it make sense our identity would never change? And I say that because if you're a Christian, so often you're like me, and we beat ourselves up because we're like, I don't look like the way I want to look, and we, like, force ourselves to try like, look better. But in reality, I mean, think about it practically. If your identity is in your job, chances are you're doing pretty well in your job. And you get money. And you advance. And you get promoted. I know, I know they say money doesn't buy happiness. My, my sister used to say, she was like, I've never bought something and not been happy. You know what I'm saying? It's like at least temporarily it buys happiness. Like you get rewarded for having your identity in your job. If your identity is in your significant other, it's nice spending your whole life around them, not feeling alone. Right? Feeling like somebody loves you, somebody cares for you. If it's in being a mother or a father, seeing their child grow. If you get instantly rewarded by 
having your primary identity in so many things from the world. And some, if I'm being really, really real, you know, wicked, whatever, some of us are riding on the coattails of either an experience we had with Christ years ago or even what our parents had. And we wonder why it's so difficult to give these cisterns that are daily feeding us temporary happiness, but still more than an encounter with Christ. And so should we not desperately be asking the question, how do I see Christ today then? How do I counter all these systems that are feeding me with seeing God today, with encountering God this week? Not in a conference, not in a retreat, not three, right now. So I can actually look at the two things and be like, he is actually better. He is actually more joyful. He does give me more hope. He does give me more patience, more kindness. It's true. I believe it. And so it's easier now for me to make this my identity and give all the other things in my box. And so it's tough. It's hard. But I think that's part of what Christ is doing. I think that's why he says to them, listen, first and foremost, just follow me. I'm not going to make it complicated. I'm not going to add too much. Just follow me. I think he's confident. If you walk with me, if you experience me, you will realize that all the things that you once thought were gain are not lost. I think he knows that if the disciples actually see him, they will not regret all that they gave up. And they gave up a lot, didn't they? It said, I don't know if you noticed in verse 18 and 20, one of Mark's favorite words, immediately. And it talks about how they drop their livelihoods. They drop their familial connections. They drop everything that people were using to recognize them to take on a new identity as a follower of Christ. It was costly. It's a theme of Mark as well. It, discipleship is costly. And if it's not, I'm sorry, you're probably not really being a disciple. Because it is. But what Jesus is trying to argue, he said, I'm telling you, when you follow me, you will realize that you have so much more to gain than you have to lose. So my encouragement, honestly, for our church, Wicker Park, is that we would not ride on the coattails any longer of a distant uh, intimacy with God, but weekly we would see our Savior so that we could choose him as our new identity. He says, follow me and I will make you. Notice he did not say, you will make you. He did not say uh, that your power, you have the power alone uh, to change. And our job is simple. It's to answer the call, and he will make you. Uh, you guys know I love uh, the image of the church, us, broken and battered as we are now, um, coming before God who is our groom. And Revelation says that we will be prepared. We will be adorned. I love that image, and I love it because throughout the Bible, Paul makes it clear, God is the one that does the adorning. God will make 
you. God will prepare us his bride for his coming again. This passage leaves room for the introduction of the Holy Spirit. And we're a little bit scared of the Holy Spirit, at least I am. Because to be honest, I don't always know how he works. I don't always get the theology. I don't always know what he's going to do. But I do believe with all of my heart that if we take a leap of faith and we give God our boxes and say, all of it can be yours, all the things I once thought I had to build my identity on can be yours, and I will follow you, then something supernatural, honestly, I don't get it, will happen, though. And the Spirit of God will begin to change you, begin to mold you into the person that Christ is calling you to be. I think there's something supernatural happening. And I also think there's something very natural happening, too. I think we miss a lot as a church that when Paul says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, you are the housing of the Holy Spirit, the you is plural, right? He's talking about the church. The community of the church, this Christian community is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So is it possible that the Holy Spirit wants to actually use the people sitting around you to help change your identity in Christ? Is it possible, and this might be controversial, that we are actually partly responsible for the sanctification of each other? I know I've talked to my small group about this before. I said, we're a family. And could that mean that part of what God's holy plan is, is that we actually help each other look more like Christ? Not in theory, but in actually, right? And to me, I, I, I thought this makes sense because it's so hard for us to, like, self-report our identity. An example, I said in high school, remember a girl came up to me. I don't know why she said it. It's kind of rude. But she's like, David, you like to argue a lot. You know what I said? No, I don't. And we literally argued about how I like to argue. You know what I'm saying? And after a while, I was like, okay, I, I see your point, right? But I use that like little example because I think so often when I try to say what's in my box, oh, it looks good. Oh, it's God. Oh, it's just Christ. Oh, it's the Bible. Oh, it's forgiveness. That's what's in my, oh, my, I'm, I have a good box. And when I invite other people, though, to tell me what's in my box, they have, for some reason, a slightly different take on what's in it. So I this downtown, and I'm going to do it here. I challenge myself. Maybe some homework you have is you need to go to somebody you love and go to someone who you know loves you. You need to ask them, what is something in my box, what is a part of my identity that you know does not glorify the Lord? or you know is an idol, or it might be holding me back. Something, something you know I'm scared to give up. Something you know I haven't taken a leap of faith with. Is there parts of my box, is there parts of my identity that is not built primarily on Christ? And if so, would you tell me? I don't know how that would go, right? 
My encouragement is to believe that the Spirit of God can work in the people in this church. And that part of his plan for making you a new creation is actually allowing us to repent to one another and to submit to each other in accountability. And to fall on our knees and look to the Lord and to say, you have to be the one that changes us. Like God doesn't look for perfect people before he gives his spirit. But I think he looks for desperate people. I think he looks for people who are at the end of themselves. For people who haven't been scared to admit they're not perfect. Who have looked and said, my box is messy. I need a savior. I think then you will see God work through this church and through his spirit in supernatural ways. So he says, follow me, and I will make you. And then lastly, he says, fishers of men. And so on one level, this is, of course, a clever play on words, right? He's saying that he knows that they are fishermen. But I think he's also saying uh, that they're pretty good at it. I think part of what Jesus may be saying here is that his hope is that when they follow him, that their identity will change, but it doesn't mean that they will have to always completely empty their box. But instead, it's possible that his plan is to actually help us live true lives in the fullness of who we are. You feel me? That they don't have to always completely give up being fishermen, that he uniquely gifted them to be fishermen, that he's given them traits that makes them good fishermen. And because he's given them a new identity doesn't mean that they have to get rid of all of their old self. But it might mean that in Christ we actually reach the epitome of who we're supposed to be. I think it's beautiful that we all have uh, distinct roles in this church. Some of us are hands and feet, some of us are armpits, maybe, I don't know. But I think this phrase, fishers of men, uh, oftentimes the way it's preached, we actually lose um, part of that distinction because it's so often preached in the context of evangelism and missions. That's what fishers of men mean. But I actually looked up um, this passage a lot, and every scholar I read said that this uh, phrase is used a lot in the Old Testament. And every single time it's used, it has a negative connotation. Did you know that? Every time the phrase fishers of men is used, it has a negative connotation. And in fact, uh, the way it's used almost every single time is giving this imagery of fishing or gathering men and women for the coming judgment of God. That's the imagery of this phrase. So when Jesus says to Peter and Andrew specifically that you will be fishers of men, I actually think it's a specific call to them. I think he's saying that you specifically have an important role to play in bringing people before the throne of the Lord to be judged. 
And I end with this. I didn't want to kind of end with it because it's kind of a negative thing, but there's a sense of urgency then in this passage as actually throughout Mark that if we're not careful, we miss. Jesus is saying, you men have a specific, distinct call I have on your life. And I think he's saying the same thing to us. And with the same sense of urgency, they are called to live out whatever mission God has. I think we are as well. I think part of what he's saying is that we're not called to do the exact same thing as these early apostles, but with a new life in Christ comes a new mission. And it's one with the utmost sense of urgency and even sobriety. And then that God is saying, I want to change your identity, but not just for yourself. You see, I think he's warning us. We don't say this a lot nowadays, but he's warning us that a time is coming where he will come to judge the good fish and the bad fish. And God has so loved this world that he has a group of people, his people, he has given his spirit to, and he's called to put their identity in him so that whatever distinct mission he gives them would help save this world that he loves. Like, that is at the heart of Mark that we cannot afford to hesitate, to tarry, to give our boxes to the Lord. It's not just because of us, it's for the people outside of these walls. Like God wants to use us to reach these people. God wants to use all of you in a unique way to guide them to experience Christ. God wants you to follow him so that you, like John, can go to other people and say, come with me too and follow him. Come with me and see him. There's an urgency ending with such a, a somber note where he said, what you guys are doing is preparing this world for my coming again. And it might not be completely pretty. And so we have a role And the salvation of this world through Christ. I want to end lastly with this. Um, what's interesting about John Mark is we know, we believe Mark wrote it, um, but we think that Peter might have given him the content. And one of the reasons we think that is actually because of how bad Peter looks in this gospel. Like he looks really bad. And actually all the disciples look pretty bad. And there's enough, uh, almost like, personal insights in it that they think that maybe Peter was, right, one of the sources. I say that because this gospel ends, sorry, spoiler, with the disciples being scattered. That's how it ends. That's a true ending of it, at least. Them all running away. And we know from other gospels that Peter does what? Goes back to fishing. Peter goes back to his old identity. This man walked with Jesus. This man saw the miracles of Jesus. And still, the temptation 
when things weren't quite going his way, when he didn't quite live up to all his expectations, was to go back to his old identity. And that's what happens to us, right? But what's the miracle of that story? Is that as he's fishing, Jesus walks up to the shore. And he calls out to Peter. And as Peter runs to him, and as they speak, Christ reminds him of his new identity. And Christ reminds him of his new mission and his call. And Christ encounters him again. And Peter becomes the man that he becomes. And I say that because I want to encourage those of you who feel distant, who feel far, who might say, I am riding on the coattails of past experiences or encounters. And I want to say, if God loved you enough that he would initiate a relationship with you, if he loved you enough that he would give you an invitation to be with him, won't he love you enough that he will call you back? Even when you're far away, even when you're straying, even when your identity is in all kinds of things, won't he be the one that stands on the shore and ushers you back into his presence? And so once again he says, just come and follow me. That's the gospel. That's the promise that God gives you. And that's what will change your identity forever. Let's pray together.